Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks for tuning in again this week. As always, special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. Without them, you wouldn't be listening to us right now. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast service. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, all kinds of different ones. Uh, Every time you subscribe and rate us, it really helps us out and helps others see this show. And as always, if you have feedback, feel free to email me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on the show, we had former Attorney General Mark Dan on. And uh, Andrew and Mary went ahead and interviewed him. So why would you guys want to have Mark Dan on? So the thing that prompted us to ask him to come on was uh, in, the, in Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer recently, he wrote an op-ed and the headline was something to the effect of, I was Ohio Attorney General. I was in the NRA's back pocket. I regret it. And so I thought, wow, I bet he might have some interesting things to say about uh, this moment in gun control. And it got us to think, you know, we are always trying to think of interesting people to ask on. Obviously, um, his tenure as attorney general is a little stormy. So I just thought that it would be interesting to have him on and talk about all that stuff in general. And kind of to my surprise, I kind of feel felt like I'd have to sell him on it. And he responded like 10, 15 minutes later. He's like, yeah, I'll do it like when and where kind of thing. So um, so yeah, I interviewed him once or twice. I was a really young reporter, but somebody I've never really talked to, somebody I've heard a lot about. So I thought it would be a good guy to have on. He's an interesting guy with a lot of perspective on Ohio politics, and he has an interesting perspective on how to handle politics when things go wrong. I thought it was really interesting to listen to his perspective a few years out. He's uh, now running a successful law firm, sort of life after politics, and, and looking back on his experiences as attorney general. You know, as as Andrew said, his tenure as attorney general was, you know, he had to resign. It was pretty, I think stormy is the right word. And yeah, I think he had a lot of interesting perspectives too on on 2018 and uh, the Democratic Party in general. So there's kind of, I think, like when anybody mentions Mark Dan or if Mark Dan shows up in a story, and I, I think this has probably died down a little bit as time passed, but uh, there's just kind of like you can almost audibly hear people roll their eyes, especially in Ohio Democratic politics. It's like, who's this guy to tell us? What does he want? And when he was in office, something that was kind of striking to me was he described being in his first office, which was a, a school board. And he was the guy who was like, this is out of order. Ohio Sunshine losses, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, questioning executive sessions and stuff like that. And that's cool. But he's kind of just like, I think every government body has that guy and if you're in government working around him you could see him like kind of being the guy who sticks out you know and that's so maybe annoys the people i guess that that he works with and but i do think that he wants to have a role in politics and i think he's probably been kind of trying to wait for what that moment might be so i don't know if that's gonna go anywhere but if nothing else you know it's definitely fascinating to talk with them you live through that stuff and we've explored already with some of our guests here kind of like people who have risen fast and then fallen hard and just like that kind of narrative theme is uh, always interesting to me it's great whenever we can get someone on here who's lived through kind of scandal or like you said you know the whole phoenix kind of thing you know falling from the ashes and coming back again or whatever something like that and uh, I, yeah, I think this interview is going to be really great. Uh, anything else to add before we get to it? Yeah, I think that's about it. All right. With that, let's go ahead and listen to the interview that Mary and Andrew did with Mark Dan. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Mark, we're interested to learn a little bit about your growing up and your background. I understand you grew up in uh, Shaker Heights. I did. Tell us about it. Well, it was. Uh, it's uh, actually I'm reading uh, Celeste Ng's novel right now that is set in Shaker Heights, uh, probably ten years after. 
after I grew up. So, but it was it's bringing back a lot of memories. Actually, it was a pretty pretty idyllic suburban growing up. One of the huge advantages we had in Shaker Heights is uh, we were one of the first kind of constructively innovated integrated communities in the country. We had the I was I started there the first year of, of what was called voluntary busing. So there was an incentive to bus white students to the more predominantly African American schools and and uh, African American students into the white school districts. So we all grew up in, in a community that was that to the extent that that was possible in the United States in 1970s uh, that didn't see color, or we certainly didn't see color nearly as much uh, as the rest of the world. So it, it uh, it's interesting because when we get together for reunions, and, and we and my class actually gets together about once a year, uh, one day, just a couple of years ago, we started talking about how hard it was when we all went to college and realized that the rest of the world wasn't like us, and like we were missing something, and, uh, and how racist really things were, and social networking was, and how unusual people thought it was to have interracial friendships, let alone romantic relationships. And it was just the norm for us growing up. So, so it was a great opportunity to be raised in that environment because it's given me a really good perspective on people. As, as my life has gone on. So Cleveland's kind of geographically divided between the east side and the west side. Now, clearly, you grew up as an east sider, and I think you mentioned you live in Lakewood now, which is the west side. So do you have any opinion on whether or not you like the east side better, the west side better, or? Well, I don't, I don't want to let east siders know how much I enjoy loving on the west side. We, have a, <laughs> we won't tell them. We can actually get to the lake and enjoy it uh, in a way you couldn't in Shaker Heights, and, and I love that. I live very close to the lake, and, and for me, you know, walking the dogs by the lake to me is is, is kind of the peaceful moment of my day. And uh, I love the access to arts and culture. I can get up at, or get out of the house at noon and be at my, my seats in Cleveland Brown Stadium with nobody else at one o'clock uh, on, a, on a game day. You get your own section. I, I get my own section. It's, it's really great. I, I, the joke, running joke in my office is we do, we do uh, legal work all over the country. And I have a standing invitation to our co-counsel to come to a Browns game. And, and now it's gotten to the point where I can't even give the tickets away to my own employees because <laughs> literally nobody wants to go, especially when it's cold out. Uh, hopefully that'll change this year. We, uh, we remain ever optimistic about the Browns. So I understand you ended up settling in, in the Youngstown area. How did that come about? Well, my, um, my wife, uh, who was a journalist uh, at the time, we actually, uh, we were living in San Francisco. I was, uh, I was actually working for uh, the DA of San Francisco, who was, who was running for attorney general of California. And uh, she was working for a newspaper uh, in California. And uh, we went to see a movie. Uh, I don't know if it's on Netflix. It's called Roger and Me. Uh, it was about yeah, Michael Moore. Uh, yeah, by Michael Moore. It's about what General Motors did to Flint, and those movies. That was the very first Michael Moore movie. And we walked out of that movie theater and we looked at each other and said, "What are we doing here?" I mean, she was from Youngstown, and we wanted to make uh, changes in in the world and make people's lives better. And I, as a lawyer, and she as a journalist, and so uh, she uh, was able to land a job with the. Uh, Warren Tribune. She had previously worked at the Vindicator and uh, over the phone. <laughs> um, and uh, and so she headed out ahead of me. When the election was over, I joined her in, in Youngstown in, or in uh, actually north of Youngstown in uh, Liberty Township. And that's where that's where we ended up raising our kids. So we, we were doing some research for this, reading some old yeah. clips. I yeah. found Brent Larkin wrote a column and he uh, he's paraphrasing a friend of yours, supposedly, but <laughs> yeah. he said that you should act more like you're from Shaker Heights rather than Youngstown. And actually, like I read the letter to the editor from like an outrage 
person about that. But what what, what, do you, what does that mean? Like, what's the difference between Shaker Heights and Youngstown? Well, you know, and I think there's a little arrogance. Um, uh, not that not that I would ever accuse Brent of being arrogant, because I actually think he's a, a, a been a valuable contributor to the to the both the political life and the civic life of this community. So, but but I think there's a I think there's an, a tendency for people, and I think one of the I think I was as much as I was greatly informed by growing up in Shaker Heights, where 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 racial issues look differently than the rest of the world. Uh, I also learned a great deal from people in Youngstown, people who uh, were working class or middle class, people who were still struggling from the 1979 shutdown of the of all the steel mills in Youngstown, people who had grown up with a set of expectations about what their life was going to look like, that they'd be able to walk off out of high school and get a job where they could support a family and buy a house, and and, and watching how they coped with the uh, the little literally literal crushing of their um, of, of their belief about how the world was supposed to work. So um, I understand that, but I also you know I appreciate the 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 uh, sense of outrage that I was able to develop there as well. But certainly uh, in the context of, of, of Brent's column, it was certainly, it was about the, you know, the scandal at the end of my, of my term. And so uh, I think in that, in that context, it was probably fair. How did you decide to get into politics? Is it something that you'd always wanted to do? Yeah, actually, actually, it is uh, something. I, I from I was very young. I, I went door to door for a guy named Mo Udall, who ran for president in '72. I have a great history of supporting losing candidates, which will continue probably forever. Um, uh, but I thought he had an interesting view. I was very upset about the environment, probably rightly so, probably more so now than I, I was probably clairvoyant in my you know when I was uh, 12 or 13 doing that. That was in the uh, 70, I think, 72 election or 70 or 76. I may, may have been 76. So even then, I picked the wrong horse. Uh, Jimmy Carter won the primary in, in 76. And then in 1980, uh, when I was still a, a senior in high school at Shaker, uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, elected a delegate to the Democratic National Convention. And again, another advantage of, of growing up in Shaker, the um, government teachers there were really inspiring people. And uh, they really encouraged us to get hands-on involved in political campaigns. Uh, and in fact, they gave extra credit, which, of course, being the grade-grubbing aspirants to good colleges that we all were in uh, in Shaker Heights, um, uh, we didn't call it grade-grubbing then, but that's what it, it was still the same. We, we although you, your generation has taken it to a new art, I might I might add. <laughs> But we, one of the reasons I got elected delegate is because a bunch of high school students who wanted to get an extra credit hour came to the caucus that they held to pick a slate for the Jimmy Carter delegates in 1980, and, and uh, they all voted for me to the, to the great consternation of the political establishment at the time. So, Were you the youngest guy there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was 17 and a half when I was nominated, and then uh, um, I served—I I turned 18 after that and uh, um, and served—so it was, it was a summer between high school and college that I went to the Democratic Convention in New York. And another thing happened at that time. A guy named Lee Fisher came into my high school classroom to talk about his campaign for state rep. And in Shaker, we had senior projects, and so I took my senior project to work on uh, Lee Fisher's very first campaign uh, for state representative. And so uh, he was also, you know, a, a motivator and somebody who inspired me to get into politics. So— Right up until he called for my resignation. <laughs> so, what was your next elected office after that? Was it school board? Was yeah, there so that I, long so, gap? So, I, um, so I, I, I was, um, I did, uh, I worked, I set up a law practice in Youngstown, and was having a wonderful time uh, raising my children and, and making a living. And uh, but the call of politics came back, and in 1998, uh, Mary, Voyle, Mary Boyle invited me to run her campaign for U.S. Senate against George Voinovich, and I, I was involved in that campaign. I was the the day-to-day campaign manager of that uh, of that campaign. I took a leave for my law practice. And when I went back, I, I thought that maybe I wanted to give a try t- myself to, to politics and elective office. I'd always been on the other, uh, kind of on the campaign side. So in 2000, I, um, I took another leave from my law practice and invested my life savings in uh, a race for state Senate. And I lost
lost to a 25-year-old who never had a job. His name is Tim Ryan. And Tim now has become really distinguished himself as a congressman. My, my secret hope is that he becomes president so that I can vindicate my only my only loss in electoral politics was was to him. <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, he always makes noise in that department. You never really know, I guess, where he's going to turn up. Well, you know, he, he is he's one of the few Democrats at this point in, in history that can articulate a meaningful message to to uh, to working class and middle class voters who, who, who are all but lost to the party right now. And I'm I'm, I'm proud of him for that. I'm, I'm glad that he did. I'm glad it could be. Obviously, it was my mentorship in him, letting him beat me um, that has encouraged, <laughs> that has enabled him to do that. But, uh, but you know, Tim's a, Tim, Tim really does have a feel for how to talk about the right thing and to do the right thing. And, uh, and, and, you know, and he's really, over the years, evolved into quite a, I think, a very, a very, very promising leader for our country and for Congress. But you're eventually appointed to replace him, though, right? Exactly. So he was elected to Congress. I was appointed to replace him in, in uh, 2003, and then uh, was elected in 2004, and then uh, and then ran for Attorney General in 2006. So kind of, you know, in between your, your runs for office, you mentioned how you, you know, put your law practice on hold, but, you know, you're currently a practicing attorney. I'm, I'm curious, what do you like about practicing law, and why did you decide to become a lawyer? Well, the, the joke around my office is that I, I, I actually truly decided to become a lawyer when I turned 50 um, <laughs> after I left office it, because I have a practice now that I am incredibly passionate about. Uh, in 2008, when I left office, I, was, I found myself as a lawyer with nothing to do um, and no job, which was not something that we anticipated. And uh, one of the things I, I had done as AG is I worked with uh, Chief Justice Moyer at the time and in the Ohio State Bar Association to create a mobilization of volunteer lawyers to represent people in foreclosure. And so I went to legal aid in Cleveland because I knew, let's say I was, it was uncomfortable for me at the time, at, and that's a, that's a nice way to say it, to be in Youngstown or in Columbus. I knew I wanted, if I was going to practice law, I wanted to, I wanted to practice in Cleveland. I was still living in Youngstown. but So I went to Cleveland Legal Aid and they gave me about a, a, a half a dozen, no, about a dozen files. Um, one of those files I'm still working on um, uh, here 10 years later, uh, uh, a, an interesting guy that uh, was in foreclosure and he's still actually his, he passed away, but his son's living in his house right now. And we're still litigating that foreclosure. But I saw at, 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 at uh, one foot, some of the trends I was looking at at, at 10,000 feet as attorney general about the, the idea that one, there was this, this outbreak of truly predatory loans that were originated in and around Ohio up to the run-up to the to the uh, uh, foreclosure crisis and the and the and the uh, meltdown of the economy in 2008 uh, and that uh, people were trying to foreclose on people who literally didn't have the right didn't hold the note that that borrower owed uh, in 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 many cases nobody knew who actually had the right to hold the note and enforce the note and uh, and then, of course, that resulted in a number of mortgage loan servicers starting to forge documents and, and uh, robo-sign things. And so it started doing that. And, um, and I just I found um, uh, that it was a, a really fulfilling thing to do. Uh, I started to represent people who could afford to pay us to, to represent or pay me at the time. I, I, I vowed um, to, to when I left office that I would work from a laptop and a cell phone. Um, and now I have 23 employees in my firm. We have 12 lawyers. So it, I, I didn't succeed at that in that goal. But, but I did, uh, but we've been able to really help a lot of people. I mean, the, the great part, very few lawyers have a practice where almost 100% of the time clients come in and they leave in a much better situation. People are in a stressful situation, but we've been able to help people work through the paths of dealing with these huge, you know, international banks and Wall Street banks that, that ultimately control their, their mortgages and their fates. We've been able to fight back 
and in part, um, in part due to some regulations that were enacted uh, when Rich Cordray was at the CFPB. So in Dodd-Frank, the uh, uh, Congress created, gave the authority to the CFPB, which they created at the same time, to uh, to regulate mortgage loan servicing. And in and what uh, one of the one of the things I think that Rich did the best when he was at the CFPB, they immediately undertook a rulemaking process, and they created a set of rules for mortgage loan servicers that that uh, that actually modeled what what uh, came from the National Mortgage Settlement. But it it it, uh, it it created a private right of action for borrowers who are who are mistreated by their mortgage loan servicer to sue them in, in federal court, and 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 that's primarily what we do now is is we bring those cases uh, throughout Ohio and around the country. So you started doing this around two thousand. Right. That's right. Which is yes. when things were kind of at their worst with right. the mortgage crisis. Right. I mean, you know, the saying that you know, when when one you know when, when God opens closes one door, sometimes he opens another, and or, or she, and 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 that's really what happened for me. And and uh, and I've become um, much more of a, a technically uh, proficient. Uh, I still am surrounded myself with lawyers who are much smarter than I am. But I have um, I, I love trying cases, taking depositions, doing many of the things that I just. I saw his work before I was in politics, and 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 uh, and that I only saw at a distance when I was attorney general, and uh, and it's been it's been great. So I've been very fortunate. I've had three really really fulfilling careers, and this is uh, this I, I love being attorney general, and I love being in politics. So I'm I, I you know I, I don't I think this compares though. I mean I'm really I'm really pleased. So you testify occasionally in Columbus mm-hmm. on legislation relevant to the, your field. Now, mm-hmm. what was it like the first time you went back and kind of showed your face in the state house? So so it was literally. It may have been a year and a half ago now, or two years ago. That was the first time. I mean, look, with with, with life is a process, and, and 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 certainly my life in Ohio and Ohio and around Ohio politics and government has been a process over the last ten years. So it was really not that long ago, and that was literally the first time I had stepped foot in the state house uh, since I resigned. So it was about a year and a half, and I I was scared. I was scared to death. Um, actually, but I was very passionate about uh, about what what was going on. There was a, a movement afoot to essentially give uh, banks a do-over uh, on foreclosing on people when they really didn't have the right to foreclose on them. And, and I, so I was very upset, and, 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 so, and I was able to organize other, other forces. So you know, some of it, uh, it was like riding a bike. Some of the political stuff kind of came back to me. And, and, uh, um, but, you know, I, I feel like I did a good job of conveying the message, uh, not letting the messenger uh, get in the way of it. I tried to use a little bit of humor. I've made a practice since I left office of reaching out to people who have gone through difficulties like I have, and 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 uh, some of them turned out were on the committee uh, that were that was uh, that I was testifying in front of. So that put me a little bit more at ease. And and I've actually been rem- remarkably pleased at uh, at the outreach uh, that that legislators have given uh, to to us. We have a you know kind of a unique set of expertise. Uh, it's very important to their constituents. Everybody is concerned about how homeowners are treated. In Ohio, and and so I'm really I'm really pleased that my my bad uh, bad times haven't been a, a, a detriment to our ability to do that. Um, so you say you give people advice. Like, what's your advice generally? Well, it depends. I mean, it, it depends. There's a the wide range of political advice. I, I'm really frustrated, and I can give you a, an example of, and, and I'm, uh, without revealing any specific confidences, but any any legislator I've talked to in the last year, this 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 ECOT white hat charter school scandal, frankly, is 10 times more potent and powerful than any scandal, than the, than the, than the Coingate scandal that I was involved with as a member of the state Senate. And, and one of the things I'm really frustrated about, particularly with the Democratic members of the legislature, is, is that with a few exceptions, they are very reluctant to take on powerful interests 
in Columbus. They're, 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 they're satisfied to take their little pittance from the lobbying community and then and, and, and lay down, essentially. Look, we were no more in power in 2005 when the Coingate scandal started to, to, to spin out than we are now. There were, there were uh, I think we were, there were 12 of us, 12 senators, so I think they're down to nine now in the, in the state Senate, but we were still had a veto-proof minority um, at the time, or we were one vote away from, from veto-proof. Um, and, um, but by using public records requests, by using uh, the courts, by standing up and, and, and asking very difficult questions, by making ourselves available to reporters who were doing good work so that they could uh, add perspective uh, by putting together pieces of things I had learned about government and campaigns over the years, we were able to really frame an argument. And that argument was that, and the frame of that argument was what led the Democrats in, 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 in part uh, to win the election in 2006. I mean, there were a lot of other pieces, moving pieces at that time, but I don't understand for the life of me, why Democratic members of the legislature aren't engaged in the same type of process and tactics right now. So I uh, I was in college when the Coingate scandal happened. I remember actually reading the reporting on it and the, the reporting that Toledo played on it was very sort of like inspiring to me as somebody who was aspiring to get into that line of work. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of our re listeners probably are familiar with it just because this is an Ohio politics podcast, but maybe some aren't. So can you kind of recap what that was all about and how you came to be associated with it? Yeah. So, so in, in uh, well, actually, it goes back to Mary Boyle's campaign in 1998 when we, when we were we were uh, George Voinovich, who was the incumbent governor, was the Republican nominee for for Senate. Mary was the Democratic nominee. And uh, in um, during that campaign, a number of people in Columbus reached out to me to say, "Look, the, you know, they had just reformed reformed." I mean, you can't see the air quotes in the podcast, but I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, fill we in. We usually narrate gestures. I'll, we, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll <laughs> fill in. I'll fill in for you there. Um, but they uh, they just reformed workers' comp, and the reform was to uh, it, it was independent of the governor's office. And, and by this by the way, this, this rings of what they're trying to do with the Department of Education right now. They brought it back in under the governor's office as a as a, a executive agency. They put a guy named Jim Conrad in charge, who was a bit of an autocrat uh, and, a, and a and a huge Republican operative. And what they were doing was was they were rewarding ca uh, Republican campaign donors uh, with the right to invest the money of injured workers and small businesses. So the way workers' comp works is in Ohio is a public system, which is unusual. Uh, employers pay premiums; those premiums are invested. And so when it's time to pay workers who are injured, that money's available to pay them. So they use that investment. And there's billions. I mean, this is, we're talking about, you know, Ohio's pensions and Ohio's, and that's another, another untold story, but the, the Ohio's pensions and Ohio's uh, workers' comp system, it was a treasure trove of, of uh, potential uh, income for people who wanted to make contributions to the Republican state party or to, or to George Voinovich at the time. And, and look, I have a lot of respect for George Voinovich. He was probably one of the good guys that I've met along the way in politics. But but he was a politician, and he had to run his fund his campaigns. And and it was it was clear to me that he was I couldn't I couldn't put enough together to make the case in 1998. But uh, but I um, uh, but it was clear to me that they were using this workers' comp reform in order to do that. Well, lo and behold, ten years later, I'm in the legislature, or close to ten years later, um, and. There's a, you know, Toledo Blade calls me and said, what do you think of the idea that, that uh, they're taking the, work, the, the uh, money that belongs to injured workers and in investing them in a rare coin fund? That was, and this was a rare coin fund that was, was managed by the Lucas County Republican chairman, who was a huge donor, as was the Lucas County Republican Party, to, to, to Governor Taft at the time. And, and uh, turns out later we learned he was also Bob Taft's golfing buddy, taking him to lots of free rounds of golf and, and, and other kinds of things. And, um, and I said, I wouldn't be surprised at all. 
because, you know, what I've thought for years uh, but wasn't, haven't been able to prove is that, that this has been a system that, uh, that the, the Republican leadership, the, the Republican governors, Voinovich and then Taft, uh, and their operatives used this workers' comp investment process uh, as, a, as a fundraising uh, tool. And, and it turned out to be true, just like ECOT, just like White Hat, just like the charter schools. So basically, reporters called you up and asked you what you thought, and you uh, kind of went from there. Because I, I know um, it wasn't just like quotes. You started actually taking kind of action. Well, so like that, I, right? I first started in my in, in one of the things you have, one of the roles you have as a legislator is in, is to be able to ask and hold the hold administrative agencies accountable and ask for information. And I began through the legislative process asking for information uh, from uh, from workers comp and, and 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 the folks that were doing business with them. When they wouldn't provide it to me, I made public records requests, which because just because you're a state senator doesn't doesn't mean that you're not a citizen, and uh, and some of those public records requests w- weren't respected. Um, as a legislator, if you want information and you can't get it, the process would be to use a subpoena that has to be voted on by the by the by the legislature. So as a, as one of the minority members, uh, Senator Bill Harris wasn't very interested in in uh, hearing uh, my motions to have to subpoena the workers' comp. Bureau to provide information. So, um, so we, I, but the public records request, there was an ability to bring a lawsuit. So, I kind of put my lawyer training on and my uh, my lawyer hat on and my legislator hat on, and we and we sued the governor a few times. And more important than the outcome of those cases, because because we, we we actually lost more of those than we won, was the fact that it drew attention to what was going on, and it was clear, but because of the stonewalling. That we're doing, you know, Nixon. Uh, Nixon said it best. I mean, we didn't say it, but he should have. You know, it's not the it's not the crime; it's the cover up. Um, and uh, and in that case, that's what happened. I mean, they were they 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 hardened up so quickly, and 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 asserted executive privilege so quickly that it made everybody wonder what what the hell's really going on here. And so that was the opportunity, uh, and that's how I th- we were able to advance that conversation. It gave those reporters another another point which to plug in uh, and to do their work. And by the way, those Blade reporters, I, one of them's at the, I think one of them's at the, I know one of them's at the New York Times because I hear from him from time to time. And I think and others, I mean, they've gone on to like the biggest newspapers in the country. I mean, they uh, they really, that was great for their career and and, and deservedly so. They're, they're they were tremendous reporters. Get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for State House happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. 
Mark Dan's time as attorney general was, you know, mired in scandal. What did what did you guys talk to him about with that? So that sort of the ironic thing about that is he actually basically was swept into office on the, you know, on the he rode the coattails of a Republican scandal. And so uh, for him to basically be quickly consumed in one of his own, it was definitely like kind of some schadenfreude, I think, from, you know, the other side. But uh, so just for those who are unfamiliar, I mean, I'll, I'll try to just be brief, but essentially when he came into office, he hired some friends from back home and some of them weren't necessarily super qualified for the job that they had. He didn't really have a professional process um, to, to do that. And so one of his top aides, who was actually his neighbor, um, and you can totally see like, hey, like, I know we can hire for this, my neighbor, that kind of thing. But so he uh, had pretty inappropriate sort of advances that he made towards a couple of yeah, just, so just to be clear, the guy who who made the inappropriate advances was uh, his friend, his neighbor from uh, Youngstown. Two Those two female employees accused the neighbor of sexual harassment. This investigation ensued, and eventually it came out that Mark Dan had an affair with his scheduler, and uh, it just was this, is like one thing after another, like when you lived through it, and eventually basically it forced him to, to resign. I think the most interesting thing that Mark Dan said out of that conversation was one, something you never hear from politicians, which is he didn't expect to win AG. Oh, yeah. Like, he did not expect to win attorney general. He thought it would be an interesting thing to do, like an interesting experience for his kids to cart him around the state campaigning. He was actually angling to become uh, Ohio Senate president. Wasn't that it? Yeah. yeah. And he he thought the Democrats didn't have a good candidate so he decided to step up to the plate and that's something you will never ever ever hear any politician say that they thought that they were gonna lose right so he was like he was like the dog who caught the car basically yeah. like, oh, great i'm a dog with a car i can't drive you know whatever so well they, well, they might not say it after they win especially like oh hey i guess i have to be ag now yeah and you know he was very reflective he talked about how the ways that he was not prepared for the job. And I think that is also something that you don't find with many politicians, the ability to self-reflect. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that he talked about was his uh, the, the moments after he resigned and, and picking up his life, his personal life and his professional life were in a shambles, I think is a correct term. Yeah, yeah. he lost his law license. He was a lawyer. Yeah, he, you know, I think he uh, had to sort of pick up the pieces and he's done a really good job. I mean, he lives in Cleveland now. He has a very successful uh, foreclosure law firm. The day that he came to speak with us, they were getting a very large order of Barrio Tacos, which is a taco joint here. So obviously doing well. Um, the taco budget is there. <laughs> um, yeah. And he, uh, yeah, the, the ability to self-reflect is not necessarily and the candor that you got from him is not necessarily something that you will see with any politician ever i I do think our listeners will probably um have will wonder or they'll doubt his sincerity i think in some of the way that he looks back uh, one of the things that he said was that he wishes his family would have come with him to columbus from youngstown when he um was elected and uh you know, somebody might listen to that and think, oh, well, he's just blaming his family or, you know, he's making excuses. Um, there's always, I think, when people reflect back on bad decisions they've made, they're contributing factors. But, um, you know, so I'm not trying to, like, get inside the guy's head or anything like that. But I I do, again, like I said earlier, there is this just kind of, like, tendency that people have to roll their eyes, like, when they think about Mark Dan. And so, I mean, you know, it's not our place to 
uh, I can't read his mind. I can't judge, you know, uh, his, I can't, yeah, I can't read his mind or anything like that, but I, I just, I did want to raise that and just kind of maybe keep that in the back of your mind when you're listening to this. He sounded quite sincere when you were sitting across the table talking to him. Yeah, he's a personable guy. So, and it's, you know, you don't get elected if, if you can't get people to like you, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, he maybe wasn't prepared for as, as quickly as he rose. With that, let's listen to more from the interview with Mark Dan. So when did you decide to run for attorney general then? Well, I didn't. I, I, so I remember having a meeting at my house. I mean, my kids were younger uh, in, in, in 2005, and we made an affirmative decision that I liked being in the Senate, <laughs> that because 2006 we thought was going to be a, a, a swing year, kind of like 2018, that we were, um, that, uh, that, you know, I'd, I'd be fortunate because there were only 12 of us. At some point, I'd, I'd get my turn as leader uh, of the minority, and, and, uh, and I could make a bigger impact as a, as a minority leader with a Democratic governor than I could ever make, uh, you know, in, in something else. Plus the idea of taking on these established statewide office holders who were, you know, sh- uh, shifting jobs, Petro and Montgomery, um, was, was pretty daunting. Uh, but unfortunately, over the course of the next year, it just became clear that nobody was going to step up to do it who I thought could, could, could articulate the message that I thought was important. So <laughs> presuming that I was going to lose and I'd be able to go back to the Senate, which I enjoyed, um, and I enjoyed the opportunity to have a private law practice and, and, to, uh, and, to make, uh, uh, and to be able to get a Senate, you know, get paid for the work in the Senate, get a couple of days of politics, and then go back to my real life and my kids and baseball practice and, and, and football games and all those things that were very important to me. I thought, well, it would be a good experience for my kids. So I literally started throwing my kids in the car <laughs> and going to, around the state to try to you know, test out whether, whether or not running for attorney general made sense. And um, you know, it, was a, it, was a, it was a long shot. For sure, but um, I thought it would be a good lesson to them, and I thought it would be a good experience uh, for me. And frankly, I thought it might it might uh, enhance my if I learned if I raised some money and, and learned how to do that better, uh, then I might be a better uh, in a better position to do a good job as, as minority leader someday, which was kind of my real aspiration in the Senate. And damn it, if I didn't win. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you didn't think you were going to win. I, I, I found a headline from the time. It was, can anyone stop Betty Montgomery? She'd never lost an election before. That's right. She'd never lost an election. And, uh, and she, um, uh, but, you know, it was central to the entire argument about why the Democrats, Ohio needed a change. Montgomery and Petro went back and forth between these offices. And the entire time this CoinGate thing was going on, and I, I used to tell this story when I was campaigning, just to, and Betty hates it. Um, which is why I'm going to repeat it now. Um, although I love Betty, and we've come to become friends, but but uh, uh, that uh, you know, I had to. I, I came home from campaigning, and um, and and uh, it was after football practice, and a bunch of families were in the kitchen, and I walked in, and literally everybody was up on top of chairs. And there was a there was because there was a mouse running around our kitchen, <laughs> um, and so I went to get the broom, and I thought to myself, you know, I've been feeding these two cats for the last five years. You know, where are they, right? So I went to look for him. The, the, you know, the, one of them I was able to find. I, I put, put him down in front of the, uh, the mouse, and he looked at the mouse, and he walked out. And the other <laughs> one I couldn't find anywhere. You know, and I said, well, that's, you know, that's like Petro and Montgomery. I mean, we've been feeding these people all these years. Their only job in life as auditor and attorney general was to make sure people were not cheating us. And, 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 that's, and that was part of the argument. And, and I think that had some, uh, th- you know, that, that ultimately had... Uh, some impact, and I think it was a, it was a, it was a strong argument to make. But we've been laying the groundwork for that 
you know, for over a year. I was thinking it was going to be for somebody else. Do you wish you would have lost just how, you know, given how everything turned out? I don't know. I mean, I had some great experiences. Um, I learned a lot. I mean, we, I, I certainly wouldn't have had the depth of knowledge uh, about the mortgage industry. We got very serious very quickly. Um, Jim Murkakis, um, as I was running, uh, began to educate me about what was going on. And Jim Murkakis was the county treasurer in Cuyahoga County that night. Right, yeah. and, and he was, he was kind of on the very front edge of what was happening with the foreclosure crisis. And, and, and uh, uh, when I became attorney general, we had a lot of tools to be able to, to dig in and to investigate that and, and to advance. I, I believe we advanced that uh, in this discussion in, in, in a way that stopped the bleeding and stopped the predatory lending that was going on in 2007 a little earlier than it would have otherwise. And I was able to, you know, gain a lot of knowledge that I now use every day uh, to help individual clients. So, um, and, you know, no, I do, do I wish I had not screwed it up? Absolutely. But, I, but, I, but I'm certainly not uh, uh, sad that I won. So you focused on foreclosure stuff. You kind of had to when you took office. What were some other issues that you took up? Well, we, we took up a lot at one time. I mean, and, and again, it went to uh, some of the things I think are, 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 have some relevance to the 2018 race. As well, uh, we realized because of my focus on public records and open meetings, uh, at the time being married to a, to, a, to a journalist certainly impacted that uh, uh, the salience of that in my, in my world. Uh, but it was important. You know, transparency, is, I think, is critically important uh, to, in government. You know, and I, I, ironically, I think people understood that things were going, not going in a good direction for me when I stopped answering questions because I was always a very transparent politician. And so I wasn't very good at shutting up uh, when, I, when, when I needed to, um, when, when things went wrong. But uh, got very involved in that. One of the things we, we figured out is that the entire, three of the PUCO members in the state were um, uh, appointed in meetings that, through a meeting process that wasn't compliant with the state's open meetings law. Uh, and therefore, their appointments were invalid. And we literally were ready to bring a quo warranto action uh, to, to, to bring them out, take them out of office. But to my disappointment, Ted Strickland just reappointed the same three people. You know, we had an opportunity, something that, that people, you asked Tom Suttis from the editorial page, that people have been, you know, the, the PUCO in Ohio has been in the, in, in, in the pocket of the, of, of the electric and gas industry for the history, my adult life in Ohio. And it's, and, and, and it's an opportunity, and, and it's never stood up for, for the businesses that rely on, on energy. I mean, for example, steel. It is now, the biggest cost in making steel is no longer labor. It's electricity. And so how our Public Utilities Commission reins in our, our, our local public utilities, uh, especially the, the private public utilities. I mean, we also have public, we have like Cleveland Public Power, which is a different story, but uh, is, is, is critical. And, uh, and it was never been consumer friendly. And here a Democratic governor had a chance to appoint a majority of the members. And instead he just put the, put the same industry hacks right back on the board. So that was frustrating. You know, we tried to forge solutions for the juvenile justice system where people who were uh, juveniles who were convicted of crimes are, 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 are warehoused in Ohio. Other states had much more therapeutic methods for dealing with, uh, with juvenile offenders. Uh, and Ohio's was very uh, archaic. Um, and and, and people, children were literally being beaten and raped by guards, not just each other in, in these facilities. And, and bad children, but children nonetheless, and tried to engage so the, and, and in fact, there was a lawsuit that was brought against the state, and I was defending the state. And uh, they brought, um, so I brought together experts, even the plaintiff's lawyers and, and their experts in the case, and brought them together with the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House. At the time was John Husted and, and, and the governor. 
and beg them to forge a solution. And in fact, a therapeutic solution would be, a safe and therapeutic solution would have actually cost less than the system that we had, we still have in Ohio for, for warehousing juvenile offenders. Um, and, um, and of course, nobody ever acted. So well, actually, one of the last conversations I had with Governor Strickland um, uh, before I left office, it's privileged because I was his lawyer at the time, but, um, but I, I had the authority. I represent, as the Attorney General, as an independent office holder, represents the state. So the Attorney General can make the decision about the state's legal position in a case. And, and, uh, and that isn't necessarily what the governor's position is. Um, and the, gov the, the Attorney General can allow the governor or the legislature to hire their own counsel, if, 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 the, if, the, if as a lawyer you disagree, you can't meet your duty to the Constitution and to, and to the judicial system and, 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 and advocate those positions. And, and this, is, you know, this is one of the questions that's come up with Rich Cordray in, the, in, in, in his, his uh, efforts to defend the law that, uh, that, that ended assault weapons bans in, in, in Cleveland and in Cincinnati, is, is that he could have exercised some independent discretion as right. AG. They represent the, the state of Ohio and the people, not necessarily the individual officials. Co correct. So, so it's, a, it's a lawyer's distinction, but it's an important one. Um, and I took very seriously. So one of the issues, going back to your actual question, so I apologize for getting kind of far afield, but uh, one of the things that really um, uh, was important to me was, was, was establishing and, and maintaining the independence of that office. Because of, because of the way I came into office and because of my concerns that, that it wasn't acting independently. It was acting as an arm of the executive, and everybody was on the same side. And so even though I was on the same side as the governor, I, I was a constant thorn in their side because I wanted to exercise that independence, and I and insisted on it. So something that I remember from your tenure, and this is maybe silly, but the Sunshine Express was a yeah. black SUV that you painted with flames on the side. Well, it was, it was an old car, um, and, and yes. And, 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 and was that a little Youngstown? Probably, but was the, was my heart in the right place? Yeah, I, I, you know, it was. I and this going back to my experience on the school board in Liberty Township. First meeting I go to, somebody says I, I make a motion to go to executive session, and I of course raise my hand and said, for what purpose? And <laughs> literally true, the board member says we got a bunch of things to talk about. I said, great, what are they? He goes, well, we'll talk about them when we get back there. I said, well, you you won't talk about them with me. <laughs> Because, I, because A, I'm not going to vote to go into executive session, and B, I'm not going to go back there if you, if you all vote for it, because that's not how the public records law works. And so what I realized is that, and, and, and these were good people who cared about kids and wanted to be on the school board, but, but that, that good people who got into, into, into government, at, especially at the local level, just had no clue about public records laws and, public, and, and, and open meetings laws. And, and so educating them about that was, was, was really important, and we put a lot of time and energy into that as well. So when did things start going bad? Well, I mean, you know, uh, when started going bad when a friend of mine who I'd hired to be the um, uh, to to run the buildings for the for the for the attorney general's office, which was a job about four levels beneath me. Well, I suppose it went bad at the beginning. One of the things I didn't understand is when you get into one of these offices, people want to do what you want, <laughs> and I didn't I didn't totally see that coming. I know that sounds a little weird because my name was on the door and I was the boss. But so um, a lot of people, you can imagine, asked me for jobs when I, when I became attorney general. And how, many, how big is the staff of the attorney general? There's 1,500 people, uh, 500 lawyers. One of the things I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, actually, and I, is a couple of things. One is we, we actually raised the pay of the lawyers in the office because they're, they're still grossly underpaid in that office. 
Uh, and that's important. Uh, having good lawyers representing the state, we're doing sophisticated legal work on behalf of a uh, of an enterprise that spends $72 billion every two years, uh, has 11 million people. You need lawyers of, of experience and substance, and there's some very arcane things uh, that the state gets involved with, so you want to have good lawyers. But my practice was, well, sure, apply <laughs> uh, for a job when somebody asked me, including my neighbor Tony down the street. And I, well, I knew Tony, and I knew his background. I'm like, that guy will never get through <laughs> any kind of a serious vetting process. I mean, you know, I liked him, but, you know, and our kids were friends. Um, but and damn if, if people didn't find a way to shoehorn Tony into a job. So, so your point was that— Thinking that I, that's what I wanted. Yeah. And, and when the truth was, I didn't want to say I didn't want it because he was my— fr- Look, his, his kids slept at my house as much as my kids slept at his house. And, you know, and, and they, were like, they were like an extension of our family. And, and so certainly I didn't want to say, no, you can't, you know, you, you can't do this. But I, but I had no idea. Um, and frankly, the, the, in 2008, the economy was roaring. And, and the quality of people that were, getting, were applying for the job, for that facilities job, looking back, I know having 10 years to stew on this, <laughs> um, you know, was very low. I mean, we got Wendy's managers that were applying for the job. I and mean, Tony at least knew about construction. Um, he actually had some creative ideas that uh, actually one of them came up in the debate. We wanted to put windmills up on uh, state buildings. <laughs> Uh, the uh, at the B, B, uh, the AG's office actually controls like 10 buildings. And so it, it, there's a great wind in, out in London, Ohio, where uh, BCI's headquarters is. There's a ton of wind. You could have generated enough uh, electricity both for the for the for uh, BCI and for the prison that was right next door. And so we wanted to, um, uh, wanted to do that. So I mean, he had some good ideas, but I mean, he was serially sexually harassing people in his office, and I had no clue. And, and, and while technically we shared a place to stay in Columbus because both of our, all of our families were in, in Youngstown, which was another frustration for me. I wish our, my family made the decision for my family to move uh, to Columbus. And that was a, you know, a, a, you know, when you're married, you make decisions together. And that was a decision that, did, that we didn't make. The, I, I think we, we blew. We should have immediately moved to Columbus. So I was running back and forth. I was running back and forth so much, in fact, that I barely stayed at the place that became so famous in my in, 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 at the end. Dan's party palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if, if I missed all that, you know, I didn't even get the benefit of the party, uh, sadly uh, for me. Um, but Tony did know that I was, you know, I was in, in a consensual affair with one member of my staff, and so when it was time to fire him. I had a difficult. I was in a difficult position because I here I was a guy whose my brand was all about the truth. And, um, and I was about to fire somebody who was furious, I, I, shockingly. I mean, talk about somebody who's not a friend <laughs> is somebody who does that kind of thing. And when it's brought to his attention and you ask him to, 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 to resign, doesn't, doesn't quit. Um, so, so I realized he really wasn't my friend. Um, I mean, there was a lot of people. You, you really do. When something like this happens, you really find out who your friends are. Um, and, uh, and that was a good, actually, in the long run, from, from, for, the, for the quality of my life, that's been a really good thing. Um, but, you know, Tony was kind of the, the, the most uh, outrageous example of that. So I felt like rather than have that story drip out or have him, you know, file a lawsuit or something, I just, I just decided I needed to, talk, to, to tell, my, tell not only my wife but to tell, to tell my constituents that, that what I had done because it was wrong. The thing that got all the headlines at the time was that uh, was the sexual harassment uh, allegations, well, actions, and then the investigation that ensued. There's also a bunch of issues with campaign finance stuff that ultimately led to a number of criminal charges. Uh, what happened there? Well, so, so look, uh, 
campaigns are inexact sciences. And, um, and, and I think if you spent a million and a half dollars, which is what the inspector general spent, combing through any of the current statewide candidates or past statewide candidates' finance reports, that you could find some of the stuff that they found in my situation. Um, I, I ended up uh, pleading to two, two different things. One is that I had, uh, I had taken a private plane, which another really terrible idea for a politician. Any politicians thinking about getting on a private plane, don't do it. But I wanted to, um, I was going someplace. I didn't want to be away from my kids. It was, it, it was a timing issue. And uh, it was, it was, it was a, the Democratic Attorney General's Association. So it was something that, was a, that the, you know, the ethics lawyer said that that's fine. I reported it on my ethics report for less than the Ethics Commission and the Inspector General determined it was worth. So it was about a $5,000 difference. I reported it at 12000 They reported it at seventeen. It's true. I did. That's what I did. I mean, I, so, so there's no question about it. Uh, I did that. And uh, the other issue I, I, I actually dis- still disagree with, and that was that when uh, state employees, and this was one of the concerns I had with prior administrations and still have with state government, it, it's, it's natural that people who are uh, working for an elected official, particularly those, that are politi- those who are politically appointed, are going to work on campaign stuff when there's a re-election campaign. And so I insisted that those people be paid uh, for the work they did, they could they would go through the office just like if somebody wanted to work Christmas season, you know, at uh, at Macy's that they would go through the office, get permission for outside employment, because there was a whole process set up there, uh, and that they would then be paid by the campaign for the work that they did. There there was an obscure law uh, that was actually passed because Dick Celeste, in order to get Merrill Shoemaker to run as his lieutenant governor. Uh, agreed to pay him something out of it because the lieutenant governor at the time, I think, paid $35,000 a year. So he agreed to pay him out of his campaign committee so he would make at least as much as he was making as a leader. I think he was the Senate president or the Senate uh, minority, majority leader to pay him as much. So, so, so that, and, and people didn't like that, so they made a law that you can't supplement a public official's salary. Well, that was twisted in, in my case to say, well, that was, that's what I was doing. So, so given the fact that there was, you know, there, there was all this smoke you know, that's really what, at the end of the day, that it came down to. Now, look, I, I did what they said I did. I am embarrassed and upset, and, and, and believe me, um, you know, wish I had done a lot of things different ways. Um, but, you know, the fact is that that, uh, that that investigation probably would have never taken place. Those things might have become issues in my reelection campaign, and I think that, you know, that's something that I probably should have thought of too. Um, but it never came to fruition, so I know, you know, we never found out. And so you said earlier that you wished that your family had joined you in Columbus. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because I think it would have been, um, uh, I would have been less, um, you know, it, it was, I, my life was, because I was, you know, Young, Youngstown's as far from Columbus as anywhere in the state. Well, Ashtabula County, which I represented in the legislature, is actually a little farther away. But it's, it's, um, it's a very long drive um, back and forth. And so, you know, the choice was do a two and a half hour commute on, on both ends of my day. And look, I had resources. I had a driver. I had I had I had a, you know I had phones. We had technology wasn't as good as it is now, but it wasn't bad. Um, you know, so I could get stuff done going back and forth. But that wears on you after a while, and certainly wears on your ability to make good decisions. And then when, if I stayed in Columbus, I was just I was just miserable um, because I was used to a, you know a different a different lifestyle. And so uh, and and then I, at that point, I was only surrounded by people who were political. Who were lobbyists? Who were who were who were people that wanted work for me in the AG's office, or people who uh, who worked for me, my former friends who worked for me, <laughs> um, and so it was you know it was it, it becomes a very lonely uh, a lonely process. So uh, I think we all would have been happier, uh, and certainly I don't think I would ever 
not that not that it's not my own my fault for and I and not that I don't take responsibility for what I did but you know I, I would hope that that maybe that would have would have changed the outcome of my my relationship decisions what do you remember about the day that you resigned there's a bunch of uh, I think there's like a letter that a bunch of Democratic officials signed mm-hmm. that was before right so yeah. what but so what do you remember about that day yeah so I remember um, <laughs> I mean, it was very sad. Um, my daughter, we have an a, a adopted daughter, uh, Mavilia, um, who is uh, um, who, who was actually uh, in, living in Columbus at the time. So she was by my side. Uh, I had another friend um, who, who stayed with me every, literally every minute from the time the bottom fell out to, uh, to the end. And he's been just a, the, Mike Harshman has been like the dearest friend to me in the, in the world. And, um, you know, I was sad. I was very sad about the missed opportunity. Uh, certainly, obviously embarrassed, but frankly, at, at the time, I was I was really concerned about two things. My daughter had health issues, and my and and, and my wife at the time was you know I was my marriage was at, at risk, and and the and and so the the, uh, the this you know the our family structure was 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 being torn torn apart. So my focus at that point, what I came to the conclusion was that there was no way that I could do both. I could fix those problems, attend to my daughter's illnesses. Um, and and uh, and stay in office, and so I, w- I was you know happy to go home and focus on that. So politically, I mean, and you you know uh, you kind of know how you've re- you've read how we j- journalists view this stuff in narrative terms. You rose really fast, and then you fell really hard. Um, yeah. What what do you kind of take away from that whole experience? Well, you know, I wish I had been better prepared. Uh, honestly, you know, one of one of the pressures that I was under um, was that between my legislative salary and my and my law practice. Um, I, I was actually earning a lot more than the attorney general earns, um, and that matters when you're raising kids and they want to do things and want you know want the right Nintendo or whatever it's called now, whatever the kids are calling it now. And um, uh, we never looked at the salary of the AG's office until after I got elected. Um, it just never dawned on me that we would win. I mean, probably two days before the election, um, there was a poll that came out that showed we were in, in range, and I thought, well, you know, based on my experience, that would that would happen. But I mean. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even go take victory, even though it was pretty clear I was going to win, until until um, uh, you know AP called the race, um, um, because I, I sat in my living room till about eleven o'clock at night with a, with a bunch of people waiting, <laughs> because I just didn't didn't believe it. So um, and then we looked at the salary the next day and like wow that's um, that's not a lot of money. Um, it, it is a lot of money for most people, but for if you're used to earning X dollars and all of a sudden that's half of X that you're going to uh, you're going to earn, uh, plus it's, you're taking out state pension and other stuff too. Uh, it, uh, it it really is. Uh, it really can be difficult and put more pressure on 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 me personally as well. So stuff stuff like that, I would have thought that stuff through. Dan kind of came back on the scene the past couple weeks by publishing an op-ed in Cleveland.com, excoriating himself and other politicians for cozying up with the NRA. Uh, what did he say to you guys about that? I do think that kind of a subtext of the whole thing was a veiled criticism of Richard Cordray, um, who is the former attorney general. He actually took over for Mark Dan, and you know he's running for governor. He's maybe favored to win the nomination um, for the Democrats. Uh, Rich Cordray followed in Mark Dan's footsteps in kind of cozying up with the NRA. Um, the attorney general has a role in Ohio of regulating the concealed carry permit system. And so 
uh, the NRA and other gun rights activists have been pushing for basically making it easier to get a concealed carry permit, making it easier for other states to recognize the ones that Ohio issues and vice versa. And so I think there's definitely a straight line there to when uh, his feelings about his own tenure and kind of the current state of play in democratic politics. I, I do think it goes back to that question of whether Mark Dan is a credible enough messenger to, to be heard and for that to carry weight. But um, if you put that aside, I mean, it's, you know, this moment that we're in politically right now, uh, you see people like Dennis Kucinich who are attacking hard to the left. He's uh, an intuitive politician. He knows how to get into issues that use them as a, as a springboard politically and stuff. So, I mean, but uh, I guess on the other hand, it was kind of interesting, like Mark Dan told us, do you remember, Mary, was it was it French TV that he was doing or it was, it was some foreign country that, you know, foreign media was taking an interest in, in his... Uh, yeah, I think he was doing a French... Uh television or radio show so I think he was embracing the opportunity that came along with writing this op-ed it was certainly a kind of sensational point to make to to condemn yourself and and other politicians for doing something bad and wrong in your opinion uh you don't again hear that very often from politicians to say i did something wrong yeah, but mark dan's always a guy too who sought the limelight i mean right you know he came into office by making uh, relationships with reporters and criticizing the republican scandal at the time and then when he came into office we talked about this but he painted flames on the side of an suv and called it the sunshine express uh, he told us he had a radio show that he did himself in the mahoning valley so he's a guy who's always enjoyed attention been you know savvy about how to uh, make his way into the media spotlight and to, to have his voice you know get out there I think he's absolutely embracing again the opportunity that this op-ed provided and and kind of like you said earlier in the program I get the sense that he is feeling his way to see whether or not he can find an, another niche in Ohio politics not necessarily as a candidate but um, in some other role. Um, and I think that this op-ed sort of served um, perhaps as a, a launch point for that. With that, let's listen to more from the interview with Mark Dan. I want to talk a little bit about, you wrote a really interesting op-ed about the NRA last week. Mm-hmm. Can you recap it for our readers? Our yeah. readers, sorry. Our yeah, listeners, Mary, <laughs> right. Right. this is a podcast. Right. right. Well, it could be transcribed. You just never know. And I actually represent people um, who are visually impaired. So um, for them, audio is reading. And so um, um, <laughs> that's a new practice area that I'm really kind of enjoying and proud of. We, uh, we, we help uh, people who are visually impaired uh, gain, make sure that there's access to website, com- e-commerce websites for those, for those folks. And we've brought some cases on, uh, on behalf of... Uh, of people and I'm and that's kind of fun and different that I'm I, again I have this law practice that I get to do all these really great things by making the world a little better for people who are visually impaired I'm making keep helping people stay in their homes I mean it's really kind of cool yeah um sorry but I digress um uh so I was last uh, t- uh was it two Saturdays ago I was reading um or I guess it was last was it last gosh I don't know it's all gone so fast it's been a fast couple of weeks two Saturdays ago I came home and I read Tom Suttis's column online about house about Senate bill 347 House bill 347 that was the bill uh, that uh, pre- used state law to preempt local uh, ordinances related to guns and he was talking about the the howl of shame of legislators um, uh, including people who are running now. And, and that's the one that Richard Cordray defended. That's the one that Richard Cordray ended up defending, right. So that, uh, that, that, were, that wrote that bill. And I, thought, and I looked at it, and I saw the dates that were involved. And 
um, one of the things that I, I, my staff was wise about <laughs> when I, when I, between the time I was elected and took office is they tried to keep me away from um, votes in the Senate because we were busy trying to get the office set up and so forth. So I'm like, please, please, I didn't vote to override that veto. <laughs> but I was, so, I was so upset about it that I, um, uh, that I, went, to, um, I went to the Senate Journal and looked it up. Um, and, and damn if I didn't show up that day um, and the day uh, that both voted for the bill when it passed and voted for the override of the veto. And it really upset me. It really upset me. Part of it because we've been watching the coverage of Parkland like so many other people are. Partly because, you know, th this whole debate about, uh, about gun laws in Ohio has started to, to percolate again. I've gotten some calls about, uh, you know, from people who are running for office about how to, uh, you know, what, what do you think we should do about this? Or, you know, what, asking me, well, did Cordray have to do what he did um, as, as AG? So I was in discussions with people about it. And I, I, just, um, I, I just got depressed. I got, next morning I went to the gym which you can't tell by looking at me, but um, and, uh, and, and on, I was in spinning class, and in my mind it came together that that was what was bothering me was that it was all tied up with my dad's death. That, that, that I remembered, I had this vis vivid memory of my mom calling me, um, and she didn't reference my dad. She was actually working for the National Council of Jewish Women, who were actually one of the, uh, one of the parties that filed a amicus brief uh, against the state's position uh, in the litigation that followed over... over uh, uh, House Bill 347, but uh, she said, this is just crazy. This is not you. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be voting for this kind of stuff, and, and particularly when it was the override of the veto, and I just kind of you know, shoved it aside, and, 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 and I'm thinking, well, what could cause me, because that, was, you know, that wasn't that long after my dad's death. It was eight years, but it was, I mean, it was uh, six years, but six years, you know, now it's been 18 years, so, and, you know, um, and um, how could I have been so insensitive and how, how not understanding what was driving my mom to talk about this to me the way that she did and others, people I grew up with, the Shaker Heights people, um, were, were, were certainly calling and talking to me about that. So I went back and I just, when I went back to my desk after um, uh, Sunday morning and I just, it just kind of poured out of me and been around enough to edit it a little bit because I wanted to make it you know, something that people could read. And, and uh, but that, that's, real, that's really it. I was just, it was, I needed to say it I needed to make an apology to my dad. You know, look, I mean, he didn't use an assault weapon to kill himself, but if there was a three-day waiting period, maybe he would have chosen not to, not to kill himself. Um, and those are, those are reasonable bills. And then as I thought about it more, thinking about, you know, actually, among real people that aren't in politics, there's actually a pretty strong consensus about what makes sense. In, in, in this was in an earlier draft of the Abed. It, it got, uh, your, your editorial editor is a mean cutter. Yeah, all editors things. are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, in 40 years around politics, I've never been. I'm not aware of any serious person that's ever uh, uh, proposed b uh, keeping people from having handguns for personal protection or hunting rifles, ever. But the NRA has established in the minds of its members. Almost, you know, I do consumer, I'm a consumer lawyer, right? So I'm like, this is almost consumer fraud, that, there's a, that there is some connection between banning an assault weapon that has the only use of which is to, is to kill human beings quickly and the possibility that somebody might take away your, your pistol or your hunting rice, light, uh, rifle at home. It's a f absolute fraud. And, and there's a pretty strong consensus in this country right now that we ought to ban assault weapons 
that we ought to create waiting periods for buying guns, that certainly nobody who's under 21 should be able to buy a gun, that, that police with, with due process of law should have the ability to remove guns out of, out of, out of emergency situations, um, and, and, that, and that we should never, ever keep people from having a gun for their personal protection. If somebody's carrying a bunch of cash home from their job or if, they're, you know, if, they, if they live in a neighborhood that where, they, where they don't feel safe, that's the government's failure. They should be able to have a gun to protect their property. Uh, or if somebody wants to go hunting with their grandfather, they should be able to have a gun to be able to do that if they wish. That's a, that there's absolutely a, a complete American consensus on this issue. But for the NRA, but for the NRA, that would happen. In any other field, that compromise would have been reached. People in Columbus, I and mean, we, we have a, there's a bill on cybersecurity that we just got, I just got an email this morning, um, and we've, we've got, we're, we're representing some class action uh, cases against companies that have lost people's data. Um, and so we've been asked to, to weigh in on, on, on that bill. And they're gathering the business community, they're gathering the technical people, they're gathering the lawyers that sue businesses into a room, and they're gonna work, we're gonna work through a compromise. I think Ohio ought to have a private right of action which it doesn't right now for people uh, for for uh, uh, people who lose your data, and and the and the tradition in Columbus was is to find consensus. Oh, sometimes to you know to the detriment of, of getting it right, um, getting it getting everybody agreement. Get everybody's agreement is more important. The one issue, well, there's two. Abortion's probably the other, but but the the one issue certainly where that doesn't happen is guns. And then I, I'm thinking to myself, and this is a lot of this happened. Thank God after I left. But they kept asking people to do more and more ridiculous things. Like, you know, you can take a gun into a school in Ohio. It's perfectly legal, and the school district can't stop you. Do you know that, that, that they passed a law last year to allow you to take a gun into a bar? I mean, that's a great idea. Let's mix alcohol and guns. But, but otherwise, serious, smart people like Rich Cordray get stuck drinking their, drinking their Kool-Aid. And, and the Kool-Aid is based on this false, you know, this, this dystopian analysis that somehow not letting people take a gun into a bar is going to lead to not being able to go hunting with your grandfather or keep a pistol in your house for personal protection. It's absurd. Can you talk a little bit in your experience uh, as a statewide office holder and member of the Ohio legislature. What is the NRA's influence in politics in Ohio? So, and that's what I thought was an important thing I could add to the debate through the, thank you for the op-ed. I, I buried the lead, as you, as you folks would say, in the, in the journalism business. The lead is that, that it's not about giving contributions. You know, banks and utility companies, and, and Tom Noe, when he wanted to invest millions of dollars of, of injured people's money in rare coins, they peddled their influence by writing campaign checks, either to the office holder or to the state party to launder to the office holder. Um, and that's how most influence peddling is done. Here, the NRA has embarked on, a, on an education program of its membership using the money of gun manufacturers to, to essentially, using consumer fraud, convince them of this false parallel between laws that, that uh, against people bringing guns into bars uh, or, or laws that allow an 18-year-old to buy an assault weapon uh, and, and the idea that they might lose their, their uh, personal pistol or their hunting, light, or, or their hunting gun or, or a rifle that they use to go shoot at the shooting range. It, it, and so that's how they exercise their influence. And, and so 
the the other you know thing that that, that went, the face of it to the politician is, I didn't go to a meeting of and I go to a meeting of school superintendents and one of the superintendents would say, well you know. You know, NRA's got the, or there's this bill. You better not vote for, for, for um, um, you know, you better, oh, it was concealed carry at the time. And I was actually kind of proud um, of the work I did in the concealed carry bill in context. Um, while Ohio enacted concealed carry um, over the objection of some, um, we had the strongest training requirements in the country, 12 hours of training uh, before somebody would be allowed to get a concealed carry permit. And, and a concealed carry permit would at least give us some idea of who had guns. Um, so from a, from a perspective of kind of safety, I, I feel like by supporting it, I made it better. That was kind of the, one, one of the stories I told myself. But, but at the end of the day, you know, those, those, by the way, those restrictions are all gone now. You don't have to have training now to get a concealed carry license in Ohio. It's one of the more, you know, the, the absurd things that they keep asking people to do. So I think that, that, that we've, if people understood how that process worked, that, that, that very well-meaning honest, honorable people who really care about the right to have a handgun for personal protection or a hunting rifle have been convinced that that right is at stake if, if, if we don't allow people to bring guns into bars. I think that's the, that, that fraud has, is, what, is what the NRA does, and they do it very well. Do you think politically the moments change where um, kind of traditionally the Ted, Ted Strickland was seen as very pro Second Amendment when he was governor, you know, Rich Cordray is kind of like staked out a similar sort of territory. He's running for governor now. And you have uh, Dennis Kucinich, who's calling for a total ban of assault weapons in Ohio. So it's obviously a more kind of strident proposal. But do you think that the moments change sufficiently where a Democrat or any politician could take, you know, a more gun control kind of stance and, and not be punished politically for it? Yeah, I actually think the public is, is, is ahead of the politicians on this one right now. Uh, that uh, and, and that happens often. Politicians have a tendency to 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 um, to fight the last election, not the election that's in front of them. I mean, I saw a Gallup poll. Assault weapons ban is an 80-20 issue. I mean, it's not a wacky thing at all. It's 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 a vast majority of uh, 80-20 among Democrats. It's it's probably 60-40 uh, among the general population. Lots of Republicans and lots of independents, particularly swing voters, women who are worried about and men who are worried about their children at school. Um, for the first time, I mean, I think that that's congealed in their mind that there's a relationship there between between some nut going and buying easily buying an assault weapon and the chance that their child might come home from school in a stretcher, uh, or worse, be dead. So, so I think that that I think the politicians are way behind that. Um, but it's hard. It's hard for it's hard for politicians to admit they were wrong. Um, I had a, I got a text from a from a friend that uh, that after after that article ran, he said, he goes, well, I think at this point you're the LeBron James of Mia culpas. Um, so, you know, so but it's hard even for me even now even knowing that I'm not going to run for office, um, you know, because I get the right to wear my hiking shoes wherever I want to go now. The, the, uh, it, it was hard for me to say, you know, it, so as I wrote that, while it poured out of me in an emotional level, at a practical level, I'm thinking to myself, God, I, you know, these are going to make a lot of people mad, a lot of people I care about. I had a lot of friends who were very strident uh, NRA supporters. I still, I'm getting, you know, a little, a little pummeled on my Facebook page um, now from, from people that, uh, 
that are my longtime friends. I think people read that and thought to themselves, Mark Dan, like first first thought, oh, I haven't thought about him for a while. But then maybe second thought was, I wonder what he's up to. Like, do you Are you interested in having a voice in political matters? Do you, are you interested in running for office again someday, potentially? I don't think so. But I, I, love, I love being involved in the process. I've really enjoyed the work we've been doing with the legislature and the fact that we're making a contribution to making, uh, protecting consumers uh, in the state. Um, there's lots of ways to be in politics without running for office and be involved. And so, you know, I've been, I've been happy to, uh, to write some checks this cycle a little bit. And I've been, I've been uh, happy to, I was at a, uh, I went to a fundraiser for Betsy Rader last night. Um, and, uh, and a friend, uh, Emily Hagan's running for judge in, uh, in Cuyahoga County. Um, although I always give my, uh, my friends the option of my endorsing their opponent. Uh, to see if that'll help them uh, more than (laughs) kiss of death, huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, we do want to ask you a couple of questions on on 2018, Mm -hmm. given given your experience. It it seems slightly similar to 2006, uh, the last Democratic wave year in Ohio, at least, you know, talk of another Democratic wave. What do you make of that? Oh, I think think it absolutely, the, the environment is very similar. Uh, the, um, but, you know, again, I, I'm really disappointed in the structure of the state party and the, and the legislative caucuses. They really could have stepped up here, and they still can step up uh, to, try to, to try to really focus. I mean, the, the, <laughs> this, this, this charter school thing, and, and it's been going on since, since 2000, you know, 2007, I sued three charter schools that were not performing using the state's charitable trust laws. Uh, to try to stop them from um, um, uh, it put them out of business because there was there, there's been no demand no requirement at all they have bought their way out of any accountability and they have literally in the case of ECOT taken millions of Ohio tax dollars and stolen them in exchange for millions of dollars in campaign contributions I mean that is that is that is CoinGate on steroids and and why we're not on that issue every single day. It, it stuns me for the from the Democrats. So, um, not for my lack of encouraging people every time I see a legislator to the point where they probably don't want to talk to me anymore. But, but I mean that's that's it, it, not just because it's a good political issue. It's just wrong. I mean, and that's part of the job of the minority party is to hold the majority party accountable, and and they haven't been doing that. So, so I think that's one difference. We don't have that kind of unifying issue. However, this gun issue, I think, has I do think has some legs. For, for two reasons. One, I obviously think it's going to be very significant in the, in the Democratic primary. And secondly, um, uh, DeWine has rehabilitated himself with the NRA. So, so he's going to get the endorsement of the NRA over whoever the Democratic nominee is. And, and so all that pandering on, 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 on Rich Cordray's behalf is going to go out the window, kind of like with Ted Strickland. You know, when he ran for U.S. Senate, you know, he said one thing off the cuff, and, and, and they dumped him uh, for Portman. Um, because a, a, a pro-gun Democrat and a pro-gun Republican, the NRA is always going to end up supporting the pro-gun Republican. And, and either Mary Taylor or Mike DeWine are going to be the, the, the person that they're going to support. Now, DeWine had to work at that for eight years. He's done nothing but their bidding um, for, for the last eight years. So, so, so that's part of it. And, and, I, and so I think, but I think that it's a base mobilizer for Democrats. That, that being, for, and I think Dennis Kucinich is onto something, honestly, here, that, that, be, that using... Uh, an assault weapon ban to mobilize the Democratic base could be something that can drive people out. People are mad about Trump, but in, in, in places where Democrats need to turn out differently than they did in the presidential race, a lot of people, a lot of Democrats are still sticking with Trump. And, and I think uh, the Democrats have overestimated the value of the tax cut. 
$1,000 in somebody's pocket, a, re, a bigger paycheck, which has literally happened at the beginning of January, is, 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 it, makes, it can be life-changing for somebody who's earning you know, 20 bucks an hour or 15 bucks an hour or 10. Um, and, and so that's a, that, that's a significant change in their lives. And, and I think that the idea that, well, somebody got more is a much tougher argument to make than, 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 than people think it is. So, so, so I don't, but, but at, at the same time, there's a lot of bad things going on in Washington, just like, you know, George Bush led us into a war that was, uh, that, that, uh, um, uh, under false pretenses, and that was becoming clear in 2006. Um, and so that allowed, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, base mobiling on the Democratic side as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I do think it's like it, but I think there's some differences. The Mahoning County Democratic Party chair, David Beatrice, and, and Tim Ryan, too, have been voices kind of, uh, I guess, articulating concern about the direction of the Democratic Party in, ho- in total, you know, the Mahoning Valley people. Um, what, what else do you think the Democratic Party in Ohio gets wrong, if anything? Well, I, I think they're not, they're not using their, 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 the bully pulpit, the, the access they have as, 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 to hold Republicans accountable. I mean, just sending out press releases from the Ohio Democratic Party office isn't, isn't going to do it. Um, and, and, and honestly, the, the party in the state, going back to Rob Birch's campaign for governor, remember Rob Birch? Uh, yeah, he, he lost by the most ever, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it, you know, has had a cabal of, of, of consultants and, um, and, and, and labor leaders. And, and, and look, I was always supported by labor, and I'm very supportive of labor unions. But labor, there's some labor leaders in the state that tend to w- want to work in their own interest rather than in the interest of advancing the party. And they've, because of the way the party's structured with the executive committee uh, being mostly appointed and the elected uh, Democratic state committee people kind of losing their voice in that, in that process, um, they, they've controlled that. So, so at the end of the day, it's more important that they get the contracts to do, because there's millions of dollars that flow through uh, Ohio. There, there was in 2016 uh, uh, for the presidential race. And there's going to be in 2018 to protect Sherrod Brown. So, so I think that's, uh, that, that's a real problem. And, and, and the other thing the party could have done differently, if, if you look at the last, uh, the, the, the politicians, Democratic politicians in Ohio that have had long-term success, there's John Glenn, who you've got to kind of throw off because he's a national hero. Um, so he's kind of an aberrant figure. He, he probably could have been, you know, independent. He could have been independent, whatever. could have been a Republican, you know, he, could have been a he communist. He was an astronaut. Right, he could have been a <laughs> communist, right, and, and, and it would have been fine. Um, but Howard Metzenbaum, Sherrod Brown, Dick Celeste, those are the last three long-term successful politicians. And what do they have in common? They are not, they are not willing to play ball all the time with the, with the lobbyists, the special interests, the, uh, the Columbus folks or the Washington folks that they have, a, they have positions that many people, you know, Ohio's a slightly Republican state. They have positions that Repub- many Republicans disagree with, but they respected the fact that they had a, a principles, and there were things that they wouldn't do and lines that they wouldn't cross. Um, and, and, and the Democratic Party in this state, because of their reliance on that Columbus cabal, not just of consultants, but of the lobbying community, you know, the, the 10% of, of what the Republicans get, that the Democrats get down there for their legislative caucuses, they, they, um, they tend to want to, to nurture candidates who are of that system and not nurture candidates like Metzenbaum and Sherrod Brown and, and, and uh, who are outside of that mainstream. Um, who do you think is going to have a better year, the Ohio Democratic Party or the Cleveland Browns? 
I think you know that may be the that may be the only outfit uh, that that the Democratic Party can can beat right now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for our last question, uh, I, I wanted to ask. Obviously, uh, the two you know front runners for you know the Republicans and the Democrats in the gubernatorial race, uh, Rich Cordray and Mike DeWine, both served as attorney general in Ohio. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a, a launch pad almost mm-hmm. for folks who want to run for higher office. Yeah, it at, seems. The, at, the, at the NAG conferences, we, we call it the National Association of Aspiring Governors. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, uh, would you, if, if your career had taken a different turn, would you have ever run for governor? You know, I think I, <laughs> given my, 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 my rousing success as a government manager, I think that if that I would have probably been happier if I'd stayed a legislator. Um, I think I'm better at framing issues and talking about policy uh, than I am about managing people. Frankly, it's not my it's not my highest interest. I, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the 23 people that work with me now. <laughs> it's uh, so it's it's getting to the point where it's where it's where it's you know almost beyond my uh, my my ability. Unfortunately, I've been able to hire some people to manage things um, and had a little more success. Uh, here, but um, so that that just you know, there's a lot of moving parts, um, and I'm not sure that that's where uh, where, where where I would land. And then I'm curious too. Uh, we wanted to ask, what's your take about the whole Me Too movement? I mean, obviously, you dealt with a sexual harassment crisis well before this issue sort of took a, a national uh, prominence. You know, look, I mean, it's um, first of all, I can see it from a couple of different perspectives. Um, I can see how easy it is or has been and was to fall into that um, because you've got people who are dependent on you, who, who with your, whether you're a business executive or a politician, that, that really kind of idolize you and how easy it is to, to misinterpret that as something else. Um, I'm so glad that this has happened for the, for the, for the community, for my daughters. For, for um, um, you know, for myself. I mean, I, I had a very vicious education in this uh, long before uh, this Me Too movement. Um, and, um, and I've been, you know, very conscious, obviously, uh, since, that, since that's happened. And, and uh, you know, it's, um, it, it, for, in order for women to become the part of, the, of, of commerce and the part of the legal community and the part of the, part of the political community that they, that they ought to be, it simply, this simply had to happen. And, and, and actually, it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of what I think is about to happen with this NRA stuff. In, in eight months, the entire worldview on, on, on powerful men and, and subordinate women and sexual harassment and the tolerance level has gone from, from pretty much pretty high to zero. It's zero tolerance now. And I think that, and again, you know, the, some of the politicians were uh, are a little bit behind that. I mean, the, the folks in the in the Bush administration, Bush, the uh, Trump administration, are still trying to, you know, to, to to reduce the ability of people to bring civil rights claims. I mean, so the politicians in Washington are, are behind the eight ball on that, just like with this NRA stuff. People have finally figured out because, shit, they don't really want to take away my my handgun or my my, my hunting rifle. Um, and, and, and this does and, 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 and banning assault weapons doesn't mean that anymore. And the politicians haven't caught up with it, but that's happened it's, it can happen very quickly. And I think that's what's happening here uh, with the guns, and I think it, that's what happened with the Me Too movement. And I'm, uh, I'm particularly glad, you know, and, and, and God, you know, of all the regrets I have 
it's that is 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 that what I what the, what I put my my family my my former wife uh, the the people that work for me that were involved in 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 the scandal what I put them through uh, you know every day I think about it and every day it breaks my heart and so you know all I can do as a human being is try to live and learn from it and uh, and I'm very fortunate now we actually have more women working in our office than men and uh, lawyers and. Um, and, you know, I love working with them and it's, and it's, uh, you know, <laughs> but believe me, I totally understand what, uh, you know, what my role is and, and how, uh, and, and to the extent that I have power over anybody that works with me, uh, how I better exercise that with great care. Well, Mark, we've covered a lot of territory today, so we really appreciate you uh, coming down here and taking them to talk with us about this stuff. No, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.